We'll pray and then we'll, we'll read and then we'll get stuck into it. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gathered us together here today. You've gathered us around your word, your word which reveals you to us, your word which is ultimately about the Lord Jesus. Uh, so we pray that you would open our eyes and uh, open our minds and uh, we ask that you would grant, grant to by your Holy Spirit that we would receive these words today and that we would act uh, in the truth that we find revealed to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Isaiah, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds... They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors... We should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary, I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, 
they shall be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they shall become like wool if you are willing and obedient you shall eat the good of the land but if you refuse and rebel you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the lord has spoken and that's god's word well have you heard isaiah preached before i hope you have it's not often preached because it's difficult and it's demanding it demands a lot of people who listen to it and who read it and so because of that lots of people just skip it but we can't afford to do that now i want you to just jump ahead in isaiah to chapter 6 very quickly isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 in the year that king isaiah died i saw the lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and we won't go on with that i'd like to deal with the book of isaiah the few times that I, when, I, when i come down here i like preaching in series um it means that uh, it's safest for preachers to preach in series uh, because that way no one can say, what you preach that for? You're, you're, you're getting at me. I say, no, no, it was just the next bit. I had to do it. I uh, couldn't skip it. But it's safest for you too because it means you don't just get my favourite bits. Right? We're dealing with the whole word of God. Uh, and so I believe that every part of the Bible is inspired and I believe that every part of the Bible is useful, even the bits that are difficult to get when we first look at it. Uh, so god willing we'll, we'll get up to this later on but what you've just seen in chapter six is the commissioning of isaiah which means that the first five chapters are a preamble if isaiah is commissioned for the prophetic task here chapters one to five serve as an introduction so these are things that isaiah would have preached throughout his long career we'll see a bit more about that in a moment but when isaiah wrote his things down he's gathered the first five chapters together as an introduction and so this is like an overview it's a survey of the sorts of things that you can expect to find throughout the rest of the 66 chapters of isaiah so the question is why read the prophets um we're going to get this to go aren't we this is going to work i'll turn it on that's always a helpful thing you know uh, I'm a battler when it comes to technology. Even a thing as simple as turning it on is a worry to me. Why read the prophets? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever tried to read the, through the whole Bible? It's a great thing to do. Um, usually, when people start off January first and decide I'm going to read through the Bible this year, they get stuck in Leviticus. They, you know, what do we do with this? But if you can make it all the way through to the, the prophets, you'll find that very often they say strange things. Now, if you've thought that, you're not alone. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he had this to say. The prophets have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Have you ever found that? If you found the prophets difficult to read and understand, you're in good company because Martin Luther said the same. And I would say the same. They're difficult. They're demanding, which is why we have to work hard at them. But everything good in life demands hard work. Why should we expect God's word to be easy? right but the harder we work at it the better it is for us and so the difficult bits we need to work at and so we're going to join martin luther in having a good look at the prophets and see what they're on about so the book of the prophet isaiah 
It's the third longest book in the Bible after the Psalms and Jeremiah. Um, it has 66 chapters, uh, more than any other book except the Psalms. So Jeremiah has more words, but Isaiah has more chapters, right? So it's a big chunk of the Bible. Um, after the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Now, the Lord Jesus thought Isaiah was important. He quoted it repeatedly. But the writers of the New Testament clearly understood that the book of Isaiah finds its chief fulfilment in Jesus and that, and they structured their books so that they were saying that Jesus has come to do all that Isaiah the prophet was looking at. If you want to understand Jesus, and I hope you do, you can't afford to skip Isaiah because if you do, you're missing so much of the backstory that Jesus came to fulfil. So if we want to be obedient, faithful Christians, if we want to understand Jesus, we can't afford to neglect Isaiah. So Isaiah is a treasure trove. Um, There's lots of famous passages in Isaiah. So chapter 7 verse 14 tells us about how the Lord himself will give a sign, the virgin will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We hear that read at Christmas time very often. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us, which is picked up in Matthew chapter 1. Also, another famous Christmas passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You're familiar with these ones? You've seen these before? They turn up in devotion books. What about this one? Chapter 40, verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Do you know that one? turns up in songs we love it don't we these are promises oh we think oh i need that kind of help god but what about isaiah 53 he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed now the apostle peter quotes that in first peter chapter 2 and he makes it very plain that the one that isaiah is writing about over 700 years before it happened isaiah is talking about jesus so we cherish these verses, we love them, and yet Isaiah is more than just memory verses. It's more than just texts that you can separate off and bung in a nice devotional book. Isaiah is a book that, that has its own context, its own story. And so if you want to get Isaiah, you need to do more than just look at isolated verses. You need to look at the whole big picture of the book, which is what we're going to endeavour to do. We need to think about Isaiah's place in the Bible and in the storyline of the Bible. So if you hold your Bible shut like that, I've coloured mine in. When I teach kids, I show them the different bits, but I'm going to do it on the overhead today. So have a look at this. Uh, Of course we know that the Bible's in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did you know that only 22% of the Bible is New, New Testament? Did you know that? Now, if we believe the whole Bible is God's inspired word, I don't want to meet God one day and say to him, I only found 78, uh, I only found 22% of it helpful. That other 78% you you needn't have bothered with. I don't want to tell that to God. And yet many Christians read the Bible as though there's large chunks of it that just don't mean anything. That's not good. That's a habit to get out of. Well, we've got the Old Testament, we've got the New Testament. Uh, 17% of the Old Testament is made up of what we call the books of Moses, the first five books, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then we've got 23% that's made up of history books. 
the history books that start with Joshua and work all the way through to Esther. Then we've got the wisdom and Psalms, about 15% of those in, in the middle of the Old Testament. And then equal with the history books is 23% of prophetic literature. Now let's get back to it. This is God's word. God in his goodness and God in his wisdom has trusted us with the Old Testament that comprises 23% of prophetic literature. And he wants us to read it. It will do us good. We need to read it. We need to believe it. We need to obey it. It'll do us good. Now of that prophetic literature, or 22% is New Testament, uh, the history uh, the history books cover a period of about 1200 to 400 BC. Uh, the prophetic literature covers a period from about 760 to 450 BC. So for you to understand the prophets, you need to realise that they were working at a time that's described in the history books. So there's overlap there. Did you know that? We often read a book from beginning to end and then you've got the Psalms and the wisdom literature stuck in the middle. But really the prophets are working at a time when the history that we read in books like Kings and Chronicles is being written. So we've got to get our heads around that as well. Now the book of Isaiah comes in there. Uh, he's first in the major prophets. Um, he was one of the earliest prophets but he was one of the most significant as well in terms of the breadth of all that he covers. Now to understand where Isaiah comes we need to think about where it, it fits in the story that the Bible is telling. The Bible is telling a story right from beginning to end. It's not just this book of, of, of morally improving stories. Uh, sometimes we look at the Bible as this book of curiosities with the occasional helpful hint. Right? The Bible is telling a story about what's wrong with the world and what God's going to do about it. So what's wrong with the world? We've heard uh, already that we've had uh, people in the community saying, is God trying to tell us something? Well, is he? My answer to that question is he's always telling us something. Every funeral you go to is a message from God. Did you know that? Every funeral you attend is a message that life is fragile and that one day we're going to meet the author of life. And when we meet the author of life, it will be a perfectly fair question for him to say, well, what did you do with the gift of life that I gave you? That'll be a fair question, won't it? Have you ever given a gift to someone who disregarded it? Have you ever given a gift to someone who clearly didn't put a value on it? How did you feel? Who gave you life? God did. What's it for? It's to give back to him. So we've got a world which is in chaos. A world which has many, many, many problems. God has a solution. Now, very early in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, God outlines the solution. A descendant of Eve is going to put an end to the one who brought evil into the world, the serpent. The serpent crusher is going to be a descendant of Eve. God announces his program by starting a series of covenants with people. He makes agreements with people. And so he raises up Abraham and then Moses and then later on David. And he says, through you and your people... I'm going to bring my blessing to the world. 
Along the way, God gave his people laws to live by, laws to help them understand who he is and how they're to live. And along the way, he gave his people Israel, who were descended from Abraham, who he gave the covenant to, he gave them kings to rule them. Now, the first king was Saul, who wasn't much good, but the second king was David. And he was an excellent king, an outstanding king, not perfect, but very, very good. And he was the model for all the kings that came after him. But David died, as all kings do, and he was succeeded by his son Solomon. Now Solomon was quite a good king, but he made many, many mistakes, one of which uh, led to the destruction of the kingdom that had been left to him by his father David. And so we find, as you read through the story of the Bible in the history books, there came a terrible day in 930 BC where the nation of Israel was divided into two parts, the north and the south. And so there's a map of Israel as it once was, divided up into tribal areas. There were 12 tribes and each of them had their own territory um, on the west side of the Jordan River. After they came through the wilderness, after they'd been brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, each tribe had its own piece of land and there they were to live. Well, in 930 BC, uh, the, the kingdom divided and you had the north, which became known as Israel, and the south, which became known as Judah. Now, you need to keep that in mind as you read the story. After you get to the prophetic writings, after you get late in the story of, the, of, of, the, of God's people, the northern tribes, the breakaway rebels, are known as Israel and the southern tribe is known as Judah. And that's where we get the word Jew from. Jews were descended from Judah, right? Okay, the story of Isaiah begins uh, in this way. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so what we find there is uh, Judah is that big tribal area there. But you'll notice also that Jerusalem is name-checked. And so what we find there is that Judah and Jerusalem are the audience. They're the who of, of, of Isaiah. Who is Isaiah the book directed to? It's directed to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. So that's its original audience. Now, here we are in 21st century Mafra. Isaiah was not written to us, was it? It was written to Judah and Jerusalem. But according to the New Testament, it was written for us. So if we're to work out what Isaiah means, we need to go back and work out what it meant to them. So here's a trick, here's a, here's a little tip for understanding the whole Bible. It will never mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them. You got that? The Bible will never mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them. So if we want to be good, responsible Bible readers, we need to do some work and go back and say, well, what did it mean to them? Why did God cause Isaiah to write these things down? And as we grapple with that, that's where its meaning comes to us. And we're going to try to do both parts. So if we've got the who, Judah and Jerusalem, we've also got the when. So we can work out when Isaiah's prophecy was written. Isaiah ministered during the reigns of King Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now, that means that Isaiah's ministry, we can date it because we've read in chapter 6 that Isaiah's ministry began in the year that King Isaiah died. So we know that that was about 740 BC, which is 190 years and 11 kings after King Solomon. 
So the, the people of Israel have been moving along, that they've been around a fair while, but 190 years after King Solomon came King Isaiah, he died in about 740 BC. That's when Isaiah began ministering. And Isaiah's career ended somewhere, it might be 701, it might be 688, but he had a career of about 40 years as a prophet. Uh, that's a long time, isn't it? I was talking to a man who was a pastor of a church for 20 years. I said, how did you survive so long? He said, I was tough. Churches can tear you to shreds. Did you know that? Churches can be really hard places to make a living. I've spoken to quite a few people who've ended up on the rough end of that deal. But to be a prophet for 40 years, that's hard work. Because you know what prophets have to do? They have to tell people things they don't want to hear. And sometimes preachers have to do the same. Did you know that? Because we're sinners. And I don't like having it pointed out to me. But I need it. And so do you. And that's why God raises up prophets and preachers. To remind God's people of what he requires. Now if you want to read the background of Isaiah, I hope you do. Write this down. Do this as homework before next month. Read 2 Kings 15 to 20. And you'll find a parallel with some slight differences and some slight expansions in 2 Chronicles 26 to 31. That's the background in the history book to all that Isaiah is writing about. If you want to see the situation that Isaiah is addressing written about as history, then read 2 Kings 15 to 20, 2 Chronicles 26 to 31. Now, I've entitled my talk today, Eat or Be Eaten. Uh, because that's pretty much what it says. Uh, what we find there in verses 2 to 3, follow it along in your Bible, please. What you find there is that Yahweh begins with an indictment. It says, oh, Yahweh is in court and he's got his people, his disobedient people, in the courtroom with him. And he says, Hear, O heavens, hear, o heavens and give ear, O earth, uh, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, we've got most of the texts up on the screen, so if you want to follow up here as well, but there'll be times when we might need to look over there as well, but just keep... So the big issue here is, do God's people treat his word seriously? Now, we all know the answer to that, don't we? The answer is we should. We all nod, don't we, right? Yes, we, we, we're people who treat God's word seriously. That's me, Right? But the question is, is it? And if it was always true, then God wouldn't need to send prophets. Now, taking God's word seriously means hearing it and keeping it. Believing it and doing it. Keep that in mind. Hearing and obeying. Believing and doing. So God calls witnesses. Two witnesses, the heavens and the earth. Now in Deuteronomy 19, we read that you can't establish any charge without two witnesses. So God calls two witnesses, the heavens and the earth, to bear witness against his people. So the question is, God has spoken, will his people listen? Will they? Will we? And so we get an image here. God is the father and Israel are rebellious children. Now that's how it should be, a happy family. Jesus is one who reveals God to us as Father, 
But there's suggestions of that all the way through the Old Testament. So the picture that we get here is that the people of Judah are God's family and he's their father. He's like a father. He's a good father. He's the best father you can imagine. He's the father you wish you had. And so God is the father, but the people are rebellious. And so that's how it should be, but this is how it is. God's children are in active rebellion against him. It's as though they're putting their middle finger up at him. Now, that's not irreverent, that picture. That's what's described here. Look what this, look, look, look what it says. They've rebelled against me. Verse 4, they are utterly estranged. They've become strangers to God. Now, that's extraordinary. But that's the situation that Isaiah is addressing. He says, in effect, that they're outdone by animals because he says that donkeys know where to go to get food and, and ox, they, they respond to their masters. So they know what's good for them. They know where the food is, but God's people have rejected him. God's people have been outdone by animals. And so we see in these first chapters of Isaiah uh, political rebellion and then religious rebellion. And next time we're going to be talking about uh, some social rebellion. Uh, but let's deal with this political rebellion, the things that are going on in the country. And so God says, Ah, sinful people, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, to say to the people of Judah that you're a sinful people and that you're the offspring of evildoers, that was a real slap in the face because they know that they're Abraham's offspring, don't they? And Abraham was a friend of God. And they think, we're well connected. We've got a religious pedigree. But God says, you're the offspring of evildoers. You've been getting it wrong for a very long time. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. Now, when we read Lord in capital letters, have a look at your Bible there. Take a note of this. You've probably been told before, but I'm going to keep coming back to it. You can never get this too much. If you see the Lord written in capital letters, that is the, the English way of spelling out the great Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Did you know that? Have you been told about Yahweh? You heard about Yahweh? Well, I wish that the English Bibles would translate it Yahweh. I really do. Because Yahweh's a name. Lord is a title. Yahweh's a name. And God told Moses he could call him by name. Isn't that extraordinary? We can call God by his name. Alec Matea was a wonderful uh, British commentator on the Bible. He wrote a terrific commentary on Isaiah. And I've heard him preach on the subject of Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh is God's Christian name. Lord's like his surname. But we can call God by his name. We're invited to. But when we read the word Lord, we've got to think, oh yeah, Exodus, he's the one who saved them from, uh, from Egypt. He's the God that makes covenant promises. He's the one that always does as he promises. Now, Isaiah also calls him the Holy One of Israel. 30 times throughout the book of Isaiah, he uses that description, the Holy One of Israel. There's only six other references to the Holy One of Israel in, in the rest of the Old Testament. So that's an important distinction in the book of Isaiah. What does it mean that God's holy? It means he's completely pure, he's separate, he's different from us in a wonderful way. But in a way that should almost terrify us. Because he's perfect and pure and he's everything we should be. 
and we're not. He calls his people to be holy. He calls them to be a holy priesthood, a a royal priesthood and a holy nation. He says in the book of Leviticus that, uh, that they're to be holy like he is. Now have a look at this. In Leviticus um, 11, he says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. That's the call for God's people, be holy. Be set apart, be separate from the nations. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, to echo the Apostle Paul. In Leviticus 26 verse 3, he says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, so hear and obey, listen and do. He says, then I will give you, and there's a whole long list of things, but at verse 11 of Leviticus 26, he says, I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be slaves, and I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. You know, when it says make you walk erect, what that means is you can walk with your head held high. You don't have to stoop around like this anymore. You don't have to live like a slave any longer. That is a beautiful picture of salvation. God has invested you with dignity. Did you know that? Don't be miserable. You're an heir of the king of the universe. He's rescued you from slavery to sin through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, don't be proud, but you can walk with your head erect because you know who you belong to and you know where you're headed. And life might be difficult, but he'll walk with you through it. And you can walk with your head held high because you're the child of the king. That's pretty good, isn't it? Worth coming just to hear that this morning, wasn't it? I'm glad to hear it. I need to know it too. But notice that if you walk in my statutes, if, it's conditional. Hear and obey, believe and do. But in Leviticus 26, God goes on, he says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, then I will do this to you. Verse 31 and 33. I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. So what is in it for them? If they hear and do, if they believe and obey, God will be with them. If they rebel... They're going to be chucked out of the land. God rescued them out of Egypt. He took them through the wilderness. He took them to the promised land, which is like a new Eden. And everything that they needed was there. And he says, and I'll protect you from all your enemies. But if you don't listen, I'll evict you. And you'll be conquered. Now, smart people would do what? Mafra Church, smart people would do what? They would hear and do. They would believe and obey, wouldn't they? We all know the Sunday school answer here, don't we? Right? But what did Israel do? What did Judah do? Well, that's why Isaiah's writing. Have a look at verse 5. Back to Isaiah. Why will you be struck down? 
Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and so on. They're sick beyond cure. They're like untreated assault victims or war casualties. Imagine if you'd been wounded on the battlefield and the medic came to you and said, no, I'm right, thanks. You've got gaping wounds. You've been out there a day or two in no man's land and there's, there's worms starting to eat at you. No, no, I'll be right. I can do this myself, pal. I've got a Band-Aid. That'd be stupid, wouldn't it? That's what Judah's saying to God. God says, I'm the great physician. I'm diagnosing you. You're sick. You're almost dead. Your country lies desolate. Hang on. Hang on. Why isn't this working? It's not working. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Have you ever seen pictures of what happened after the, in World War I? Beautiful forest just torn down to matchsticks. That's if there was anything standing at all. That's what's happening in Israel. Now Isaiah is compressing his whole message into these first few verses. Uh, so it hadn't happened yet to Judah, but it was going to. He's compressing the whole message of his book. Uh, Judah was going to be devastated. Now who was it going to be devastated by? It was going to be devastated by Assyria. Now there's Judah down there and there's Assyria up there. Uh, who's Australia's great enemy at the moment? We, well, don't answer out loud, you might get in trouble, right? But there was a time when the threat of the Japanese was very real, wasn't it? My dad grew up in Queensland. He's told me about living in Maryborough, Queensland, 200 miles north of Brisbane, knowing that the government had said that they'd defend only to Brisbane and no further. So my dad at primary school grew up worrying about the invasion of the Japanese. Now, if you lived in Judah, you'd heard rumblings from the traders coming to town that the Assyrians were on the march and they were looking for new territory. And that was no small thing because in those days, the Assyrians were a symbol of terror. Now, I went to the British Museum a couple of years ago and if you go to the British Museum, you can see a collection of sculptures that were taken from the, the, the palace walls of the king of Assyria. And they show what the Assyrians did to their enemies. They show them laying siege to a city which could last years and starving the people to death. They show them coming over the top of the, uh, the cities uh, with, siege, uh, with, 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 um, with ladders. They show them throwing innocent people off. They show them coming with siege, uh, with, with these these machines that could knock walls and gates down. But as well as that, they show them skinning people alive, flaying. That's what the Assyrians did. And Isaiah has to tell the people: if you don't straighten up, God's going to send people who you don't like very much at all, and they'll be instruments of His justice on you, the people that have decided to make yourselves strangers from him. So Assyria, they did come and they knocked out the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And in 701 BC, they got to the very gates of Jerusalem. But they were turned back by God. And so in verse 7, We read, your country lies desolate. Verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, 
like a lodge in a cucumber field. Have you ever seen pictures of incredible survivors after a great natural devastation? That's from uh, Hurricane Ike in Texas. One house. Why that house? Who knows? How did they feel? The only house in the neighbourhood still standing. I hope they didn't say, oh, God protected us and he did that to you because that would be a bit unkind, wouldn't it? But that's what Judah's going to be like, like this outpost in a Mount Zion, in, in just surrounded by destruction. Now, Mount Zion is code. Yahweh, the Lord is code. That means the God who makes promises, the God who keeps covenant. When you read about Zion and you'll read all the way through, when you read Zion, you need to think of a few things. Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. And it was famous for being the site of the temple. And so Zion is a physical location where God lives. Now, when we read of Zion, uh, it's a code word in the same way that you can read about Washington. So Washington has escalated its warfare rhetoric against the Kremlin. When you read Washington, you need to understand that Washington is more than a place. It's a place that symbolises something quite big, right? So Washington symbolises the White House, the Pentagon. It symbolises America's military power. So when Washington is making threats to the Kremlin, it doesn't mean that the Washington Library is talking to the Russian Library. It means that all that Washington represents is saying, don't mess with us. When you read Zion in the Bible, you need to remember that it it covers a lot of territory. So Zion is the place where Yahweh lives. It's, uh, It's the home of his people. It can also be his people. But Zion is Jerusalem. It's the people of God. When you read Zion, it's a code word that captures all of these things as well. And Zion is going to be laid waste. In fact, it's going to be laid waste to the extent that in verse 9, we're told that they'll be left like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, it was destroyed by fire from heaven. And Isaiah says to the people of Mount Zion, of Jerusalem and Judah, you're going to be left like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we get to this religious rebellion now. And we're told there, what to, in verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Well, weren't sacrifices a good thing? Weren't they supposed to make sacrifices? Yes, but in uh, verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. Weren't they supposed to do feasts like Passover? Yes, they were, but God says, when you spread out your hands, in verse 15, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Your hands are full of blood. Well, shouldn't God's people pray? Yes, they should, but formal but heartless religion doesn't fool God. Now, this this is a real challenge for us because it's good to come to church, isn't it? But that's not the point. It's good to be involved in Christian service, isn't it? Yes, it is. But do you think that you're impressing God when you do that? Do you think that he's sort of ticking off, yep, one more, yep, that's good? One of the churches I've pastored at, we used to find it easier to find people to mow the grass than teach Sunday school. 
And there would be people who you'd ring them up and say, I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, I'll cut the lawn though. Just setting foot on the premises. It was like, I've done my bit. You wouldn't see them on Sunday, but they'd cut the grass. That's a modern equivalent of what God is talking about here. People who were just doing the stuff. Playing the game. Keeping up appearances. But you can't fool God. Because God knows your heart. Now we see plenty of examples around the world of heartless religion, don't we? I was at a conference this past week where the fellow told us that his first parish in England uh, was a very liberal parish where they didn't really believe the Bible and he went out as a young man full of fire believing the Bible to be true from cover to cover and he would say at the beginning of every one of his sermons just as he'd finished reading the Bible he'd say keep your Bibles open and there came a week there came a week where a whole lot of them had planned and they, he says keep your Bibles open and they went and slammed their Bibles down on the seats in front of them as a symbol to him that he was preaching to people that weren't listening. But they turned up week after week after week after week and tried to get him sacked. Why were they there? Because they thought that turning up was the point. Heartless religion, friends. It doesn't fool God because God knows your heart. So what's the solution to this religious rebellion? Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see, true faith always produces good deeds. What we believe has to be manifested in the way we behave. Now, it's good to cut the grass if you've got grass to cut. It's good to turn up to church. But don't think that by doing that you're fooling anyone. Because... True faith expresses itself in sincerity. And so we read in the New Testament, James chapter 2, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So Yahweh makes an appeal to them. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God's saying, I'm going to transform you. If you'll hear and obey, if you'll believe me, I will transform you. He says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so there's the challenge. Israel's on notice. The covenant curses that God laid out in the book of Leviticus, they're they're still on the map. They're going to happen. Israel's on notice. And so we go back to the beginning. Hear, O Evans, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. But look how the passage ends. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what do we need to do now that we've heard this today? We need to listen well. We need to heed the word of the Lord. God won't let his word be challenged, and he doesn't like being ignored. I don't like being ignored, so why should, I, why should God put up with it? At the beginning and end, end of the passage, we've got references to the, the words that the Lord has spoken, which he expects to be obeyed. So Yahweh appeals on the basis of that. And the big issue of this section is that, in fact, the big issue of Isaiah is we need to take God's word seriously, need to hear and do. 
Now, it doesn't have to be the way that it is in Judah. It doesn't have to be that way. God promises to transform them, but they need to heed what was said in Moses and what's being repeated by Isaiah. Whatever happens is going to be a feast. If they obey, they'll enjoy the good things of the land. If they don't, they'll be eaten by the sword. The prophets use poetry to get their point across. Whatever happens is going to be a feast. They'll be eat, they'll, they'll eat or they'll be eaten. Two choices. So what about us? Well, the challenge for us is to avoid heartless religion. When you read the Bible, when you hear the Bible, do what it says. Because as people of the word, we too need to hear believe and obey now john chapter 14 verse 15 jesus says this if you love me you will keep my commandments if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him has jesus done anything for you has he he has he saved you do you love him Really, how would he know? You see, the old saying, talk is cheap, is very true, isn't it? We can say we love him, but and it's good to say we love him. But we show we love him when we obey the things that he says for us to do. So the challenge of Isaiah is that Isaiah is preaching to ungrateful people who have been given all these good things from God but have now turned their back on him and are taking refuge in heartless religion God says come back come back I'm your father he loves them like children but if they don't come back he will deal with them according to the promises of his word but he pleads with them to come back which is why he sends Isaiah And the call of Isaiah is hear the word of the Lord, believe it and obey it. And the message for us today is just the same. If we love Jesus for all that he's done for us, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, our loving heavenly father, we thank you that in your mercy and in the fullness of time, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our saviour, to call us to be yours. You've saved us from slavery to sin and you've caused us to be people of dignity who can walk with our heads erect. Please help us not to keep going back to the old things of the world, the things that you've saved us from. Please help us to be people who hear and obey joyfully, gladly, uh, reverently, because of all that you've done for us. We acknowledge that every word you've spoken is good. It's good for us. Some of them are hard to understand. But Lord God, we pray that you would help us to understand. And as we understand, we ask that you would help us to to obey. And so we pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen.